This podcast was founded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our deepest respects to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners and elders past, present and emerging. We honour and celebrate the contributions of the oldest living civilization to art and storytelling. We all misbehave sometimes Want to change the world Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour, the podcast for rebellious spirits that aren't afraid to tackle the taboo. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. Welcome to us. Welcome back to us. Welcome to the sound of our voices. We're so happy to be here. Um, Wanted to start off this episode with a cute little question for my dear friend Rose. Are you ready for it? What inspires you? Oh my gosh. For some reason, I thought this question was going to be about Taylor Swift's 10 minute or two. I mean, you could totally say that. <laughs> Taylor Swift does inspire me. Um, what inspires me? Okay, wait, I need to rephrase it. What is inspiring you right now? Like in this chapter of your life? Um... What is inspiring me? Oh, you know what's inspiring me? Which is something that usually scares me. Uncertainty. Usually uncertainty, it feels really uncomfortable and not knowing my future feels really difficult and throwing myself, like I don't like change, but I'm aware that I need change in order to grow and develop and experience But it's not a comfortable feeling. Recently, a lot of things have been changing and I felt the need for it. I felt really stifled and trapped. And I just felt like trapped by my own life in many ways, which I think you go through these patches. And that feeling of uncertainty, it's still scary. I'm not going to pretend that I'm suddenly like au fait with uncertainty in general. But there's something about the unknown that feels exciting and inspiring like there's endless options I'm playing the I could game rather than I should like I could do this I could do that like I could do anything I want gosh I didn't expect you to go so big picture I love it also Taylor Swift's 10 minute version of all too well (laughs) (laughs) that's a perfectly balanced answer I love that what inspires you at the moment other than your friendship with me. <laughs> well, that is constantly inspiring me. In a moment of rare sincerity, I do actually love Roz. Spoiler alert. <laughs> She's really quite lovely. What's inspiring me? Oh my me? God, it's recorded. <laughs> yeah. I'll have that forever. <laughs> yeah, play it back to yourself, you bloody loser. I'm crying <laughs> yeah. at night. Oh my God, there we go. We're back. Back to normal. Back to regularly scheduled programming. Um... <laughs> It's inspiring me that I consistently get my acrylic nails done and feel like a bad bitch. That's inspiring me. Currently, they're green. They're so freaking cute. I'm looking at them right now, and that is very inspiring. Um, I'm reading a really good book about sex, Come As You Are, by Emily Nagowski, I think her name is. That's inspiring me. Taylor Swift, of course. We're in Red Era and we're so happy to be here. It's beautiful to see you blossom and grow into this like bad bitch who has acrylic nails. Do you do that thing where you're like tapping your nails all the yeah, time? Yeah, let me hear. Mm. Listen to this, guys. Oh my gosh. 
ASMR episode. Oh, let me do it right on the microphone. Oh, gosh. Poor Chedgy. <laughs> the reason I asked you that is because I recently got a new therapist who is changing my life. Thank you so much. <laughs> Talking about your feelings does work, folks. It really does. And they asked me that question in one of my first sessions with them. And I was like, floored by it. I think it's such a cool question to check in with yourself about because the answer changes day to day. So yeah, that's what I'm grateful for. And also for the opportunity to connect with really cool people like our next guest. We're talking to Aretha Brown, who is one of our dream guests. I remember we spoke about having her on the podcast right from the minute we started it, which is just so beautiful that we get the chance to talk to her. It was one of those conversations where as soon as I'd finished interviewing her I called Roz and I was like oh she's so incredible and funny and beautiful and just very psyched about how such a cool human exists out in the world so we're very very lucky to bring you this conversation and we hope you enjoy My name's um, Aretha Brown. I'm a comedian and artist based here in Melbourne. Uh, born and raised in Melbourne's western suburbs, Footscray, but I'm also a proud Gabangari woman. Um, well, my mob's from northern New South Wales up in Sydney. And yeah, you know, I'm involved in, you know, do a lot of politics and activism as well on the side. And that's kind of ingrained in all the work that I do anyway, but that's me summed up. So you're a comedian as well, and you've spoken about the humour in your work and how humour is a weapon of resilience. There's such a history of resistance in um, comedy. So I'd just love to know, like, why humour is important to you and how we can then see that in your work. Well, yeah, I suppose, you know, any kind of oppressed group uses humour as a kind of weapon to, you know... um, fight authority and to kind of, you know, human weaponize against any kind of authority figure. And I think that's what I do in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I suppose my bedazzled works were, <laughs> it kind of took a while to be like, oh, people to kind of realize it, like, oh, these are actually funny. <laughs> I think a lot of non-Indigenous people assert a level of kind of earnestness to Indigenous art. It's probably a little bit misdirected. It's like, oh, no, this is actually really funny. And like, it's a bedazzled boomerang with Mariah Carey. Like, this is funny. Why people think it's like wrong to laugh? And I'm like, no, that's what I want you to do. And I think that happens with most Aboriginal artists. It's like, it could be something that's so objectively funny. Like, you know, I was looking at Tony Albert's Wrecking Ball, Miley Cyrus, Captain Cook artwork yesterday, which I don't know if you've seen, but he dresses up like Miley Cyrus and sings Wrecking Ball and then demolishes a statue of Captain James Cook in a video. Oh, my goodness. That sounds so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're analysing at uni and everyone's like, yeah, you know, I I think he's talking about this. this." And I'm like, no, this is just really funny and I think it's just like a satirical work. But I don't know. I think it's like there's levels to it. I think sometimes people let you be funny and as a woman as well, that's like another thing of people being like, oh, this is – this is very serious. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, I've been doing stand-up for a while now, doing lots of comedic writing with some of my friends, mostly other women. I made a you know, short film last year and it's definitely the kind of next step for me, I think. I've done painting for a long time now, but I think that's how I'd love to end up writing. Writing for like TV, writing comedy and somehow connecting all of this work that I've been doing over years. Have you always felt like you could let yourself be funny in your work? Is it like a new thing that 
like letting go of that seriousness and kind of allowing your sense of humor to be portrayed in what you do. I think I've always been a very lighthearted person, but again, it's kind of audiences assuming that all Indigenous people are very serious and earnest and, you know, obviously with a history of like such deep colonial oppression that people don't worry us that space to kind of be funny, even though like the funniest people I know are all Indigenous. <laughs> it's like, just like, it's how you cope with trauma. It's how you cope with stuff. And um, yeah, I think I was Indigenous Youth PM a few years ago. And so that was a pretty big role for me. And so that was going into lots of spaces and it was like very serious and I had to really take myself seriously, but I'm a lighthearted <laughs> person. So that's how I explain things is through jokes and humour. And so that was when I realised, oh, maybe, you know, being Indigenous PM, how can I turn this into something that's going to be sustainable for me long term? And so that's why it was kind of easy for me to get into stand up because it was like the exact same thing. I'm still speaking up on a stage talking about Indigenous issues, but then I just get to be more authentic in how I do it. And so it's actually been a really relatively easy transition. I <laughs> yeah. love that growth. That's yeah. so cool because yeah. I do think people tend to dismiss funny women a lot of times in what they say. Oh, totally. 100%. I was also found, I think, that like certain people let you be funny. Some of the funniest people I know are all women, but in some spaces don't warrant them to do that. And so actually doing stand-up now, it's like, okay, I'm walking to a space. I know a joke is going to be said, and so I'm going to let this person be funny. And women just don't get that. It's just not something that easily comes to us. I only really get that space, I think, with my female friends or in women's comedy group at the moment, and it's just so nice. But um, sometimes men don't let you do it. Even though like you could say something that's objectively really funny, they'll be like, can't have it. You can't be smart and successful and funny. You get one. That's it, <laughs> queen. You had your choice. I think a lot of women, when they are funny and when they do comedy, it's like filled with a lot of empathy and like assertiveness and they've like looked at the world and kind of made these observations. Well, we don't get to speak, so we have to make these observations. <laughs> we never get to bloody talk. That's always a driving force in my comedy as well is like empathy. And when I did How Do We Call Him Melbourne, I got so many messages from like male friends being like, oh, dude, like that was actually really funny. And it was like the actually is what got me. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Well, I think you're actually, you know, a bloody dickhead. No jokes. Um, but yeah, it was like that. It's like that little actually. That was actually great. Hey, you're you're actually really smart. This is actually a really good podcast. The tone of surprise. <laughs> yeah, always. I was like, oh, OK. Great. Thank you, darling. I'm like, I don't know what if that's a compliment. I don't know how to interpretate that. Bit to unpack. I'm not going to do it, but thank you, I guess. So I love this idea that Aretha spoke about of humour as resistance or resilience. I think it is so cool and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I spoke to her. And it brings up a lot of things, this question of who you feel okay to be funny with. You know, what groups of people do you feel like your sense of humour like thrives in? And she was reflecting on the fact that it's her female friends in my friendship circles as well. Like it does take a certain type of group. And for me, it's mostly my female friends and my queer friends who I feel safe and good to laugh with without being like pulled up or like told that I'm crossing a line because I think for me my sense of humor is like definitely <laughs> gone into um 
male-hating territory. Like, that's, I'm just going to say it now. Like, that is funny to me. I really like jokes at the expense of men, uh, straight men, by the way. And I think there's that space is only available to me when I'm with my queer or female friends. Like, otherwise it just... Yeah, it's it doesn't land <laughs> it doesn't for some land. reason. Because <laughs> people don't like to be the butt of a joke, I guess. Women have been the butt of jokes for so long. Oh my god, I just remembered something. So you were talking about your I hate men thing. I sometimes make jokes about <laughs> I make the jokes about the gays. I've heard so many groups of people say the gays yeah. as a derogatory <laughs> term. The gays, like it's some exotic animal, some strange species of beast. The gays. You know, the gays do this, the gays do that. We all work as one. <laughs> <laughs> we say everything in tandem, you know, as one chorus with the gay agenda held, yeah, held close to our hearts. The gays. So menacing the way that it's said. <laughs> I often make jokes that the punchline is the gays because it's hurtful and it's hurt me in the past to hear it said. And so I've made this joke, but to me, it's quite funny because it's an experience I've had and I'm kind of reclaiming it in a way. It seems such an innocent phrase, you know, from someone who's not in the gay community, but the way it's said can feel really hurtful. But I remember I had someone hear me make a joke and assume I was homophobic and they called me out on it, which I want to say I'm very proud that they did. Was it a man? A straight white guy who was like, hey, like my girlfriend's brother is gay and I don't know that you should be making that kind of joke. I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. And I was like, hey, name redacted. <laughs> um I'm gay, uh, so you don't need to worry. <laughs> I'm not homophobic. But I made a point of saying thank you so much for calling me out on that because I would never want to be in a space where someone was saying something like that in a malicious way and no one said anything. And it feels really, really lovely that you are such an amazing ally that you feel comfortable stepping up. I mean, he is a white man. He has such a lot of privilege and him taking that and going, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to use that in a really effective way. I felt really good being on the on the other side of it, but it was a very strange <laughs> situation to be called out in that way. And, and it did make me realize, um, you know, I have to be very careful about the space that I make that joke. I was with queer friends. And so, you know, everyone else kind of was fine with it. But I think because he didn't know that, he thought we were laughing at the gays rather than laughing at our own tortured experiences. <laughs> yeah. That's so, I think that's really, that's really funny. I mean, one of the jokes that I love, and I know that it's not <laughs> that funny, but like, I really love generalizing and just saying that men aren't funny. Like, I just think it's such a crowd pleaser and like, well, actually, no, it's not a crowd pleaser. <laughs> People don't like it when I say that at all. Um, and I've actually like had to get like similar to you I've said that in like social settings as a funny joke and like people have been like actually no like I actually know a lot of really funny men <laughs> and then you have to kind of and you're like I was making a social commentary on the fact that women can't be funny but thank you so much <laughs> I mean, again, it speaks to, like, the urge in both of us to, like, reclaim things through humour. Like, for me, humour is such a pillar of my entire being. Like, I use it 
every single day of my life to make myself like (laughs) truly most of my self-worth is tied to whether people laugh at my jokes So for me, it's not necessarily that other people laugh at my jokes. I laugh at my (laughs) own jokes all the time. People find that so obnoxious. But do you know what? It's kind of radical self-love for me. There is one person on this planet who has my exact sense of humor, and that is me. And I'm not going to always be like landing the best jokes in the world. I'm not always going to be the funniest person in the room, but I'm always going to find myself funny. And I think that one of the things that gets me through life (laughs) just in general is absurdity and people's inconsistencies and flaws and making light of things and and taking things with good humor is something that I've learned is really helpful. And so I kind of have to enjoy my own sense of humor, my own jokes in life in order to get through tough times. And so it's kind of like a version of radical self-love for me because I'm like, I'm going to laugh at my own joke and I'm not going to feel cringy for finding myself funny. I'm not going to be cringy because I put myself out there or, you know, feel upset because you're not like joining me in this. Like I'm allowed to feel joy and express it because I've made a little like a little pun or whatever it is because I'm just in that moment but I just I feel like people want you to feel ashamed of, of doing that. And I refuse. You are really funny. Like, I find you fucking hilarious. And we always laugh so much. Oh, my gosh. We need to tell everyone about oh. our cold <laughs> opens. <laughs> Roz and I do this thing where um, after our one term of improv and now we think we're like Australia's <laughs> undiscovered improv stars. And so... Which we, we absolutely are. are. Um, we did a crowd-stopping improv scene together that we will. We both just remind ourselves of in times of strife. Um, we were both cops. It was very. We were solving a murder. It was very, very funny. But whenever Roz and I will call each other, we'll like do a cold open. So like. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really know what you're going to get on the other line. There's always a scenario. I'll be honest. I feel like sometimes I do the heavy lifting with the cold you opens. You absolutely do. You really lately have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Roz even will leave them for me in my voicemail <laughs> if I don't pick up. Like, <laughs> I'll just play this voicemail of this random character who I have never met before in my life. Just a little moment of joy. They're so (laughs) joyful. (laughs) I mean, saying it out loud, explaining to a general audience your like weird friendship quirks is so, it's really confronting. (laughs) No, but this is it, right? Like, let's not be ashamed of finding our own sense of humor funny. That's what we're talking about. Like, you're allowed to find something funny that other people don't find funny. Some people might listen to that and go, that sounds like the most ridiculous thing in the world. I can't believe they do that. So what? I think it's great fun. Okay, well, speaking of funny, will you please see us out with the monologue from a Cinderella story? No, I'm not doing it. (laughs) No, you have to. Okay, do the end bit. Um, Get into character. Oh, should I do this? Heads up, yo. Five minutes. I'm coming. <laughs> That's... Rosalind, oh, no, 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 I was kidding? getting into it. I was getting it. I was okay. going to do Sam, but I, I made myself laugh. <laughs> Ros did this before and she sounded so much like Hilary Duff. It was 
uncanny. I'm not going to sound like Hillary Duff though. I've got performance anxiety. Take it back. Take it back. No Hillary Duff here. Just a vague accent that isn't American. (laughs) (laughs) I know that guy that sent those emails is somewhere inside of you, but I can't wait for him because waiting for you is like waiting for rain in this drought. Useless and disappointing. See, that's hilarious. <laughs> Let's go back to talking to Aretha now. Back to her incredible wisdoms now. Segwaying into a little bit of a different conversation about art. So last year, Gorman stole a bunch of your designs and they have a history of doing this. I want to know how that felt and also like if you ever got closure or accountability from them. If I'm being perfectly honest, I don't know what I'm allowed to speak about just because there is still a bit of a legal battle. Very happy to speak about it now, but I just can't go into detail. No, that's um, so fine. Lisa Gorman, we're looking at you. We're looking at you, Lisa (laughs) Gorman, right now. (laughs) Like I really don't like Gorman they just rub me the wrong way oh, no, they're horrible and they've done this before like as you said they've done this to the other young artists and that's exactly why they do it is because they're young artists and um can't afford to do any copyright claims or legal battles and I'm very lucky I had a very sympathetic lawyer George Legal that is also an art collector so she was like I'll do your case if you give me some art and I was like let's do a few people then <laughs> I was like let's go for anyone let's go there's anyone but yeah, young people just can't afford to do it. And so it's just so sneaky. It's such sneaky business practice. You know, I can't go into it too much, but just crazy, you know, and it's one thing to rip off a young artist, but like young mob, it's like, come on, you know, there's there's no way around it. And um, no, they're pathetic. They It always gets me that they they made a sweater for a fucking dog before they extended their clothing line size range to more than a 16 like I can't fit into any of their clothes the dog's walking around here in my design like (laughs) like it's trash (laughs) it's trash and Melbourne runs on Gorman oh my god I didn't know they did dog's clothes that'll kill me if I have to see my design (laughs) on a dog that that'll be the final straw That'll be it. Another lawsuit coming, honestly. Lisa Goldman's dog. <laughs> I've been waitressing for a very long time as well because, you know, being a painter and a comedian does not pay the rent that well. But um, so I was waitressing for a very long time and I was working at a restaurant and I actually had to serve a woman that was wearing my dress one day, which was so sad. Oh, that is so devastating. I deserve her chips. I deserve her fries. I was like, literally like, do you want more fries with that as I served this woman in my dress? And I like walked into the back room and I just cried. I'm not, I don't know, tear up that much, but I just cried. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. And luckily my very lovely boss, big Torres Strait Islander woman, who's just a legend, Norni at Mabu Mabu, went and spoke to her. And she kind of educated her on the spot. Cause she was, you know, a white woman. And she was obviously very embarrassed and um, she felt a bit bad. And I'm not, I'm not having a go at her. She didn't know any better. Such a devastating thing when you, like you've spoken a bit about your identity and how much of that, of your humour and your life is in your art. And then to just see that on some mass produced thing that mostly like white rich women in Melbourne are wearing. Oh, totally. Like, and like, I'm a student, you know, I'm here in a show house right now. 
I got to pay the rent every single month. Sometimes it's difficult, especially during lockdown when I'm not working. Like each dress sold for like 250 bucks or something ridiculous. And it's like, that's more money than I've like, than I know, you know? And again, it's like, yeah, every single symbol, every single star, every single line, dot, you name it, I've developed over years and it's my language. And so they've just muddled it together and they're trying to communicate a story that doesn't translate, you know? Indigenous people historically haven't had a written language. We use our art to communicate our stories and our ideas. So for them to just reuse it, it's like, it's like someone writing down the Chinese alphabet, but their interpretation of it on a dress. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's a practice that we see continually from brands like this, particularly with people of colour where, you know, it's that cultural appropriation piece where they'll take the parts that work for them and then leave the parts that don't. And I'm just wondering as a young Indigenous artist that with that artistic practice that's so entwined with your identity, do you have any advice for other POCs navigating that space of trying to protect your art and make sure that you being like paid properly and that there's like accountability in that space? Well, I think the big thing for me that has been so helpful, and I, like I said, I can't really go too far into the legal thing because it's very ongoing. It's just like documentation. So every single time I make an artwork, I put it on Instagram. It's not just because it's like, oh, look at my art, like showing off, like, yes. It's like literally like now I've got a date on this. I've got a date, I've got a time, it's online and it's under my name or whatever. I've got horrible sketches that I hate, but my manager's like, keep it all up because if anything ever happens, you can go, you know, oh, this is where that star, for example, came from. It's been developed and now look at it here. So then if it's ripped off again, you know, there's, there's, I got receipts pretty much. <laughs> so document everything with a timestamp. Even if you don't want to put your folio up online, just have it somewhere and then Trying to think what else. Just the digital space is so tricky nowadays because anyone can reshare art and do this and that with it. And even after the Gorman thing, I only painted for the first time yesterday in like four months because I've just been so sad because of Gorman. Like I just didn't want to paint again. So I did a little painting yesterday, but um, it's just I'm been... so glad <laughs> yeah. that you did. Did it feel good to do um, again? It did. It felt nice, but I just, um, I just haven't. I've just been a little bit like depressed, honestly, because of it. Um, so much taken. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, no justice at all. I'm doing a new mural next week, which is the first time in a very long time since Gorman, so that's good. Got the whole team. I've got a whole team of women that I work with in all my murals. I only hire women because I'm not crazy and I'm trying to make <laughs> money here. I'm not trying to muck around. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I just prefer to have women. the big catalyst for a lot of your life and all these amazing things you've done. The speech at the 2017 Invasion Day rally. I'm going to quote you to you. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) It's time for white Australia to sit down and just listen just once to what we have to say. So I'm wondering in your time with the community work that you've done and your public platform, have you seen this happen in a thoughtful and authentic way yeah I think so for me it felt like an overnight thing I think it's definitely happened within my lifetime which is crazy people that I, I never in a million years I would think you know being in high school because I only got out of high school like three years ago two years ago 
people that I never thought in a million years would go to Invasion Day rally now go every single year and post photos and a bit of a controversial opinion but your intention for going into those spaces doesn't really bother me too much as long as you turn up and you do the right things and you pay the rent and you get other people involved and you talk about it with family like why are you over there you can't read people's minds you can't guess why people walk into a space and do things like that'll just make you go crazy you know I can't question why every single white person would go to an indigenous event and their intention is it's like it's crazy and so I think if you rock up you do the right things that's like good enough for me you know and obviously that there's a lot of kind of performative activism and woke but at the same time, if you're spreading awareness, it doesn't really bother me, you know? It's kind of, I've got other things to worry about as to why every single white person is in a space, you know? It's kind of like, it's a big ask for me to have to think about your intention. It's like, I don't really care, <laughs> you know, as long as you show up. I wanted to talk a little bit about the great resources that you have about decolonization and decolonizing yourself. So you have this amazing PDF that we'll link to in our show notes that's decolonize yourself questions for the thoughtful ally which is such a brilliant place to start would you be able to speak a little bit about why you made that resource and what you were hoping to get from it just to preface I think I um I wish I had more resources like I said I'm only 20 I'm still doing uni at the moment so if it was up to me I'd just be making so much so it's not there's not that much but thank you for hyping me up I get so many DMs every single day from people just wanting to ask me things. I love people being interested, but it's just not sustainable again for my mental health to be answering thousands of DMs about like trauma or like genocide every single day when I'm just trying to like sunbake in the sun outside, you know? I'm like, this is a bit too heavy for nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I got to the point where I was like, half of these questions people can kind of answer themselves. I kind of worded them all so that people can answer their own questions, uh, particularly white people. You don't really need me to kind of unpack your privilege at all. You know, I might be a soundboard, uh, I might hold up a mirror to your privilege, but you don't really need me or other Indigenous people. And you shouldn't actually use us to kind of work out your own privileges. You can do that yourself. So that's kind of why I collated it. And I also made a YouTube channel for a while where I made some videos which answered all the main questions that I would be regularly asked in my DMs. So now I could be like, go look at the YouTube channel. <laughs> I'm sunbaking and watching Real Housewives, okay? I'm very busy today. I don't have time. To do your uni essay, darling. I can't even finish my own uni essay and I've got to do everyone else's. You've kind of spoken a little bit about like this burden of education. I'm sure you feel that a lot with like having a public platform, people asking you questions that... Not even public platform. I think most Indigenous people get this. So I'm probably getting worse as well if people want to <laughs> want to learn more and become more work, which is fine, but there's just, it, there's ways to go about it, you know. So I've got some uncles and aunties that would gladly sit down and talk to you for four days about our history and I got some mob that are you know we're complex people that uh, my pop doesn't even you know he just passed away recently god bless but my pop couldn't even speak to white people the kind of later years in his life just because he had so much kind of trauma and it just you know, only speak to mob and so we're complex people some people would love to speak to you about it some people that's their biggest fear is having to bring up trauma so it's just um I don't know, it's a tricky thing, you know, because you want to listen to Aboriginal people, but then you also don't want to be too much. So where resources are given, use them, I think. And so, yeah, look at my YouTube channel. There's, I wish there were more Aboriginal YouTubers. I'm waiting around for it. We just need more young people taking over social media, especially Indigenous. I think we're at the dawn of that time, which is really lovely. I think it's all about to happen to kick off. And there's not to say there's not people now, but um, like really have some presence online. So it's exciting, but... I don't know. You've got to do your own work as well. Meet us halfway with these conversations. We talk a lot about 
unlearning, which is kind of hand in hand with this decolonization process as well. And I was just wondering if you could share something that you're working to unlearn right now. It's so hard to explain because I know this is just an audio because I'm using my hands right now, but it's like white people are kind of learning stuff about Indigenous culture and I'm unlearning stuff I've been taught about Indigenous culture in terms of like, you know, the ideas of beauty, for example. I have to unpack that every single day so I can learn to love myself. I'm unlearning stereotypes about Indigenous people that I very much internalise, you know, that we're lazy, that we're drunks, that we don't do anything, we're not smart, we're not really, really sexy, which, you know, we prove every single day. Absolutely. Um, but you know just like unlearning things like that so it's like yeah it's this weird like you're learning I'm trying to unlearn things but we can learn unlearn and learn together just one last question what's bringing you a lot of joy in your life right now my girlfriend am I allowed to say is that corny no, please do. We kind of started seeing each other properly during lockdown and it's been so nice. So we've actually had so much time to like really, really get to know each other. Really get to know each other. So she's also an AFL player and it literally is like the hottest thing in the world to me. I know. I are like mutually obsessed with each other. It's so good. And she plays for my team. I'm a wag. I'm a wag. I should have introduced myself as a wag. I should have said Aretha Brown, Indigenous activist, comedian and wag. And Victoria, the Aboriginal Victoria Beckham. That's right. Oh my God. I, this is kind of a posh spice outfit. Yes, today. you do. That's the other thing we love is um we got to hype up the AFL women's season. We want as many people watching and getting around and getting memberships. We need visibility. We love AFL. I'm a big footy fan, surprisingly. People wouldn't see it, but I love it. And oh, she's so good. She's so good at playing. And I'm just obsessed. We're just. Oh, this makes me so happy. I love it. Oh, good for you guys. That's fucking great. It's like the pinnacle of being. A queer person is like dating a footy player like oh my god I've like I never thought I had a type AFL players I'm like and I'm like she's like a pillar of health as well like she's so healthy and then there's me that oh she's gonna walk in and I'm gonna be so speaking about him <laughs> don't tell anyone hopefully she never <laughs> listens to this this will be too meta she'll be like oh what are you doing I love it I love all the the crush talk. <laughs> everyone, shh, everyone listening to the podcast, shh, don't tell. I'm not even going to say your name. You can you'll find on my Instagram. But women playing sports, we love. We always want to encourage. Not a great Aboriginal uh, women playing this season as well as always. You know, AFL is an Aboriginal game. People forget that. Mungrook. Um, so you know, it's wonderful to get around. And yeah, I'm a wag, everyone. Tell everyone that you know. Oh, it's massive. That's why I reached out to interview you like I knew. And I was like, I've got to get her on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) Probably my biggest accomplishment. Yeah, it goes Indigenous Youth PM, artist, then wag. Thank you so much to Aretha. What a queen, what a legend. She mentioned a really cool resource that we just wanted to highlight and plug here because I have found it really helpful and I think all of you would as well. And it's her decolonizing yourself questions for the thoughtful ally. So we'll put that in our show notes. When we do this podcast, we're always trying to push ourselves in directions of like thinking and reflecting in an actual productive way you know like actually moving beyond that crux of just recognizing privilege without any action and I think that's what really struck me about this 
question sheet is it guides you through that. So there's no need to like slide into her DMs and ask her (laughs) what you need to learn about. Like these questions are all written there for you. It's super accessible. So they go through things like what land you live on, if you're connected to the community, who your local elders are, what language, if there's any words and phrases that are used there. It then goes into like confronting your privileges. So like what your privileges are, why you might be uncomfortable to talk about them. How did you get your privileges? What are your biases? Can you talk about them openly? Also, if you're not someone who lives in Australia, definitely find out more about our Indigenous history, but also look into the Indigenous history of your own countries because I know we have people who listen from America. There is a very long history there. And, you know, there are so many different countries where people sort of forget. Oh, yeah. Colonization is not just an Australian thing. (laughs) No. So if this is the reminder you needed to look into it more, please do so. Yeah. Find out what the land's name is and what language they speak and like maybe some really basic facts around the history. I think, you know, once you start like now that I have a lot of the language and the understanding, like it means that my conversations go to places that like challenge me and actually make me think a bit more and like push me through that decolonizing work, which is, you know, it's lifelong. It's not going to just happen overnight. You're not going to do. And that's the thing with um, Aretha's Uh, questions as well like you don't just do them and then bam you're decolonized you're done congrats you get your little badge of uh, I have decolonized like no it's an ongoing lifelong process and it's a joyful one yeah I mean the hottest bitches decolonize their minds haven't you heard (laughs) absolutely I mean obviously you're gonna find stuff that is really hard to read that is a reason to know it. You shouldn't. <laughs> Finding that out is like one of the reasons you should know. Things that are hard to hear sometimes are things that you need to hear. But there's also a lot of joy and amazing history and technology and, you know, threads that have led to today. And that's really beautiful. Bad Behaviour is a proud podcast with Diamantina Media. This episode's executive producer was Nicola Kranich. Hosted by Rosalind Ankatel and Nicola Kranich. Editing and sound design by Namcheja Magembe. Produced by Rosalind Ankatel, Nicola Kranich and Namcheja Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad.